Hi there. That voice is the voice of Drew Wesley. Thanks for being with us, Drew. Yeah, I'm glad to. So I know you as an improviser. Right. Uh, I, I met you in probably 2012 or so when I started mm -hmm. doing improv at Cold Town, right. and you had already been doing it for quite a while at that point. Mm -hmm. You you have a background. You were in the Marines. Mm-hmm. I have always thought of you as sort of the the wizard of Cold Town. Mm -hmm. You know, as soon as somebody's new, you know, you're there introducing them to everybody. You're, sure. the, you're the one who's who's just making sure that everybody mm -hmm. who who wants to be able who wants to be accepted can yeah. be. You yeah. know, is that it, you? You also seem like you've moved around a lot. You seem like mm -hmm. you. You know, and yeah. I, I was a military kid growing up, so I, I kind of get that same yeah. vibe. You yeah. know, the, the yeah. moving around a lot as a kid. You. Yeah. I try to get to know people that are new to the theater a lot, and it comes from, I don't know, just being like a, being a platoon sergeant. You're saying you were a platoon sergeant, yeah. and we'll get into that, but I know you as an Austin sort of resident. Right. It seems to be a place that you know very well that you've lived in for quite a while. Right. Well, I was born in Canada, and I'm still a Canadian citizen, even though I served in the U.S. military. But you no. live... So what? So your your mother's Canadian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my dad is uh, German. German, full, full, full German. Yeah, you, full don't, yeah. you don't have an American parent. No. But you grew up mostly in the States. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we explain moved, that a little bit. I, uh, I lived in California the majority of my life, but I moved out to, to Texas in uh, 2006. I did like half a year in Houston, and then and that's where I got interested in improv. Okay. Okay. So what brought you here? Uh, my dad was in a motorcycle crash and was paralyzed, so he was hospitalized for like three quarters of a year, and then after that, uh, I took care of him because uh, I'm the older sibling. My sister was sort of in a crucial, just a period in her life. You know, she was like in a relationship she was trying to finish her phd and also just as the older brother i just wanted to protect her from seeing things that uh i knew you you know you you would see taking care of somebody who is uh quadriplegic wow so, so your dad was, was quadriplegic yeah. he was in he was yeah. in a motorcycle was that that was he lived here in austin or? It, that happened in league city in okay. That's outside of Houston, uh, in texas right? yeah yeah because uh, while taking care of him, I saw improv for the first time, like real improv, long-form improv comedy for the first time in Houston. In Houston. And that got me into And I just wanted to be social. So... Um, mm -hmm. uh, and you came out here and then right. ultimately ended up in Austin, Texas. Yeah. So so how old were you when you moved to Salt Lake City? Uh, like, oh, like two or three. Okay. And I was there uh, until uh, until the end of fourth grade. It was just a portion of my childhood, but it was like a crucial point. Growing up, I was like immersed in military history and like reading The Lord of the Rings at a really like much younger age. Because I read so much after school, uh, I developed this vocabulary, which was another thing that made me feel different in Salt Lake City. Kids would kind of like make fun of me for using big words. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember one time I asked the teacher, like she was about to start a test and I was like, could you give me an estimation of how long the test will be? And even the teacher rolled her eyes at me like, oh my God. Four syllables, jeez. Yes. Nerd. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I was always in these church singing groups as a, as a non-Mormon, you get into church just to have a social outlet. 
And so I would go into singing and choir, and that was the beginning of me being interested in acting and drama. And that was, uh, we'd travel around, put on shows, like musicals, basically, but like, you know, super Christian rock, like, there was like angels that were being sent down to the school to teach the kids not to do drugs or have sex. Uh, and I remember we, did, we, went, we went on a road trip to Texas and I saw a tent revival for the first time, which was crazy because I was just used to like church just being a, a place where people just go to have a social outlet. And oh my God, in Texas, they took Christianity very seriously. <laughs> Like, and everybody else afterwards uh, in the group was like crying and like so moved by the preacher. And then people were singing, I'm going to lay my sword down by the riverside, all that. And I just wanted to go back to like our van and just get out Soldier Fortune and read about Rambo. <laughs> the, other, the other the other kids in the group, were the, it, we were called the Crusaders. And uh, that was our, and they, they would just look at like what I was reading. It was all just uh, just like war and uh, but at the same time for me like do they still publish Soldier of Fortune magazine I, I, yeah. I, I it's nowhere near as good oh my god well I I I, I I have a very vague understanding of yeah. what it is, so you'll you'll have to help me out here. But my understanding of it yeah. is like if I needed a mercenary, yeah. or if I needed to kill someone, uh -huh. like I would go to the classifieds. That was a real end. thing in the eighties. That was um, a real thing. Like Soldier Fortune got sued a couple of times because people who were veterans and had like were trying to work in private security, they'd advertise their services, and somebody hired somebody through that. Uh, and they, well, they were like, no, not to protect me, but more to kill somebody I know. And they, they, it was a criminal thing. And, uh, Soldier Fortune wasn't encouraging this, but in, in, in the 90s, they went into this weird phase where, uh, Clinton came in and Waco, uh, happened. And suddenly, like, there was this whole militia thing that kind of split like the alt-right or whatever, you so that know? Was, that was kind of the beginning of that yeah, movement, yeah. the the whole, like, survivalist, yeah. nationalist. Like, yeah, because, yeah. like, Soldier Fortune was, like, pro-law and order pretty much and all that. But, uh, but, and, but then there was all these anti-government weirdos that but were it, mixed up in it. It is an American publication, yep. though. Oh, yeah, and, totally. And it, yeah. it's, it was it's slanted. Founded by all non-vets. Right, right. And so. it's, 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 it's the... Uh... Super. It is super reactionary. Like, wears okay. it on its sleeve. I, I think the spookiest thing about Soldier Fortune was there's, like, some early issues, back issues that I that I read. And in the back of it was, like, uh, adver an advertisement for a book that was advertised as it seemed like 19 like a sci-fi book like 1984 but like the bad guys are like to steal take your guns you know like uh, gun control uh, Nazis or whatever but it was a book called the Turner Diaries I was, I was just gonna say I think mm -hmm. I know what you're talking about yeah and it was the book that uh, Timothy McVeigh was inspired by and when I was at uh, Berkeley I picked it up and read it and it's just like Nonstop hard hardcore white supremacist uh ultra racist 
uh, propaganda. And uh, it has lots of description of how to d- blow up buildings. You know, like Timothy McVeigh just basically followed the blueprint. Right. And, but that, that was that was not sanctioned by Soldier of Fortune. That was no, in the classifieds in the it back. It was just like, yeah, like they weren't really paying attention. They, right. You feel like this was just a bunch of guys in Boulder, Colorado, who were putting out their war magazine. And they they attracted a lot of strange characters and, and all that. You'd look at now, looking back at me now, I, I think any like adult would be very concerned if they were looking in my room. I mean, this was this was pre nine eleven. This was pre Columbine. Oh, yeah. oh, this yeah. was when 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 you were you were allowed to to like like guns. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a thing. Like, I wore um, Rhodesian camouflage jackets that I got out of Soldier of Fortune that were like looked cool. I thought because they were kind of like purplish gray and black. And Rhodesian. I look, yeah, I looked like one of those like one of the dudes in like Public Enemy. How they would have those guys in the urban camo or whatever. And uh, today it would just be like red flag, red flag, red flag. But in the late 80s, it was like everybody was into that. It was the Reagan, Top Gun, you know, Wolverines era. And so, yeah, I, so I went to a college thing and there was a Marine recruiter there and I just wanted a cool poster. So, <laughs> um, so you're a whole military uh, your whole military career yeah. can be traced to the desire to have a cool poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Do mean, you still have the poster? Uh, oh, I don't even remember which one. So I, how old were you when you were uh, ready to enlist? You're like, I'm, I'm ready for this. I was 17, uh, so my dad had to sign the uh, permission slip so I could go in uh, just that a little bit early. What was your dad's take on it? I mean, your dad's German national. I mean, he's... he's, in, he's I mean, my dad grew up in the ruins of Nazi Germany. And so, like, he would say, like, I grew up in a world where all the adults had been as wrong as anybody could have been. Like, they had just completely fucked up. And, you know, so, like, for him, like, they just wanted to, like, listen to records of, like, American rock and roll and hang out and like the last thing on anybody's mind would be oh join the military oh that's like you know did you did you still have that that sort of feeling like uh, as an american in the late 80s like mm-hmm. oh the military that's just for you know losers or whatever i think that was a thing in america like during the F, in the ha- post vietnam hangover mm-hmm. but like if you look back at like movies like stripes and i think that's where it's the the culture starts to have this sea change the military starts to be become something that's cool again and i think there was kind of like a, like a backlash like the culture in the 70s had been so anti-military that that's probably why people in the 80s were like ultra pro military or sure. whatever you get you get kind of the yeah. pendulum swinging in mm-hmm. both directions yeah i i just recently rewatched top gun yeah and uh it was it's the movie is pretty much just pure unfiltered sure. propaganda so you 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 grew up in this in this culture kind of uh mm-hmm. saturated in in uh you know totally saturated just just guns yeah, and, yeah. and military porno yeah, yeah. and everything just uh and then you you joined the marines at age 17 mm-hmm. still probably carrying in your head here's the the thing i thought because of all that crap i thought i'm gonna be great at it (laughs) like i thought i was just gonna roll into boot camp and i would be because i I was like oh yeah i know how like a compass works and all this stuff and like the the one thing that was impressive was i could say the military alphabet i I think which is it goes like alpha bravo charlie delta echo foxtrot golf hotel india julia kilo lima mike november oscar papa quebec romeo sierra tango uniform victor whiskey x3 
Frankie Zulu. So I oh, those those well done. Yes, yeah. very fast too. It checks out. Thanks. Nick, he's I, good. Uh, he's <clears throat> verified. Yeah. Well, with that. And the whole rest of the time, they were just railing on me because was, I was uncoordinated. I couldn't drill. I was in bad physical shape. Uh, I was just terrible at everything. So that was that was like your moment where you gave yeah. the estimation you know, yes, to the teacher, yes. the drill instructor. Totally you're like, yes. watch this. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was that was fun. Um, well, yeah, I will say uh, we were we were doing some you know before the interview here. We we were just kind of giving you an idea of what we wanted and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were you were sort of giving us a list of topics, and mm. one of those topics that you were comfortable talking about was being a nerd or an outcast right, in right. the military. Yeah, uh, seems like that's that's sort of where we're getting yeah. into. Here, so. Like psychologically in boot camp, like it's thirteen weeks and it's intense from like week from like just from the first few days in the like back in nineteen ninety, you weren't allowed to hit recruits. Um, it happened in other platoons, but my senior drill instructor, who had he had the eyes of Satan. I swear to God, I could not. I know make, him. <laughs> I could not make eye contact with him, but he was that intense, and he was just too good at what he did to go negative on the recruits. Like it seemed like the drill instructors that weren't as good would like have to lower themselves to punching a recruit to scare them. Uh, my drill instructors, they were just terrifying, but also good at gradually building up, you know, the positive, you know, just like our, our drill instructors were so tough on us that it wasn't too long before we really believed we were the best platoon and we took company honor platoon, uh, by the end of uh, boot camp just because, um, they, terrified but also really were perfect at getting us to build up our self-esteem of that we're the best and you know we deserve to beat the other platoons in any of the various competitions my weapons training was done in uh, Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Baltimore and that's where we were on an army base and that was a lot of fun to be to have just finished Marine Corps boot camp, and we looked locked on, like we marched really, really well. And the army, the soldiers, they just looked like, oh, uh, like somebody had like rounded up a bunch of high schoolers and, and put them into unwa into like you know wrinkly camis and. Or if you think of like those street performers where you have like one dude and like four like Michael Jackson mannequins next to him mm. and he has them all on wires, like that's how exact we would move. And so, so that may be the first time that the Marine Corps has been compared to Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, so, what, so what I'm, what so I'm the ar- yeah, we just like the, the army just looked like slobs and we right. just we would talk all kinds of shit about them. Oh man, we wanted to get into us, we, we had a snowball fight with them one time, but. Uh, their sergeant stopped it because, like, we we want. Oh man, we were just so hyped up on aggression and like that boot camp, just like uh, uh, you know, arrogance that we wanted to get into a fight with the army. We were like, "Come on, soldiers, start something." So, how much interaction did you actually have with the army at that? Very time? little. Very. I mean, like you'd talk to the army soldiers that were in your uh, in your weapons training class. You'd get to know them. You know. And they just, they just, they were, they were nice guys, but they just came across as like civilians, you know, and we were the real military. Right, know? right. Yeah. So, you know, 1990, 1991, things start to heat up in the Middle East, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Iraq and Kuwait. 
Where, where, where were you during all that? I was in the reserves the whole time. Just finished all my training, and I'm ready to start college at this local junior college. Okay. And my reserve unit was on Treasure Island, uh, which is in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. It's an old Navy base. What were you in charge of at that point where you're like, okay, so now I'm, I'm in such a rank? Nothing. I was a private. I was a, like as low as you can be. And I was in this armory section. Mostly what I did was just keeping watch over these things and records and, you know, d- uh, nagging people to clean them. So it, it really wasn't that much different from being a child in your childhood yeah. where you just have yeah. gun, pictures yeah. of guns all over yeah. the wall. Instead of pictures of guns, it was th- hundreds of M16s in racks along the walls and M9s. And I mean, uh, we would always carry a loaded M9 pistol on us with a round chamber because... I don't know. It was like wimpy. Otherwise, <laughs> were you still reading Soldier of Fortune at this point? Were there, sure. were there like new episodes? Well, like, okay, yeah, cool. sure, sure. You finally had people to talk talk to it about the people who talk with it about. Uh, talk, no, no, talk they thought it, it was weird too. Like <laughs> they wanted to read. They wanted a uh, hustler. They wanted to read porno. Oh, you know, yeah. they didn't. You you got activated though, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in yeah, the, yeah, and uh, yeah, we got. I was actually up in Canada around Christmas time, and I got the phone call up there, and they were like, "Wesley, what the fuck are you doing up in Canada?" Show <laughs> my mom drove me back across the border to get on to the nearest, uh, quickest, soonest flight in the states back to California, and uh, so I could just grab all my gear and. Uh, everybody else was already uh, going in uh, to the base and uh, getting prepared to to we thought go over to the uh, to the Persian Gulf. Were you, was everyone excited about that? Were they like really amped up? People were intimidated. They were a little worried because back then all we knew about Iraq was that they had fought fought a long war against Iran, and they seemed. They seemed tough. Like this was a real country of over 30 million people. Uh, it wasn't going to be Grenada's, but everybody could tell. And there's that surreal quote, like you don't like, so people weren't excited, but at the same time, nobody was like afraid because you don't, it's not real yet. And, know? and I, I can't think that part of Marine Corps training is right. We're going we might lose, right? <laughs> no, no, no. That was never a never a concept. Right. Like but you do understand like they do teach like uh no, uh the Marine Corps will win, but your your platoon, your squad, yeah, you could get wiped out. So you could right. lose uh your the war from your perspective. You could lose that. You could lose an arm or a leg or something. And so you be- really believed that you were in the best of the US military and so you thought I'm safest here you know like they really made you feel this is the best way to survive is to be with people who are the best yeah so so yeah then you're you're called back from canada you get on a plane yeah but you didn't end up going to iraq or kuwait no and we always thought it might have uh the rumor was that it was because we were from the san francisco bay area that they were worried about protests if we went or something i don't know it was just that they sent over a bunch of reservists and they sent over a lot of people. And by the time we were all set to go and we were in uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, uh, the war just started without us, basically. And but with just the Saudis backed up by U.S. air power, you know, I mean, basically our air power just took out everything. And so 
there was like marine reconnaissance units that were just calling in airstrikes uh, from planes and the Iraqi forces there were just annihilated. So they kind of realized yeah. this isn't a big yeah, deal. This is we'll the U.S. Right. military just like took a breath and was like, okay, we got this. This is kind of going to be a turkey shoot. And that was when our orders were changed and we were told that we're going to uh, Norway instead. How did that make everyone feel, though? You're like, oh, there's a war. We're Marines and we're going to Norway. This is one of the weirdest things about this time was um, like we were kind of psyched to go to the Arctic Circle because that was going to be pretty cool training. But it was weird. Like, here's the war of my generation and I'm like missing it. And I what for a while there, I was bothered by that a lot. And and I was like, I bet if I got myself a pair of desert camis at one of the surplus stores in town because we hadn't been issued them yet and in the in my in the armory i had i had control of the the locks on all the weapons i was like i could just check out my rifle i could just get my pack and my gear and some desert camis and i bet i could just blend in with the group and just sort of like get on the plane with them and then once i'm over there they'll just use me i was like they're not going to send me back i'm sure of this you know i love the idea that your camouflage is used in that particular context <laughs> yeah. it's it's camouflage but right. in a much different way than right. it might be expected well yeah that was like the only way you could tell is like they had desert camouflage and the boonie hats and i was like man if i just got one i could just blend in just be like that extra guy where everybody's like, who is this? What? Oh, okay, great. Get on the bus, you know? And I'd be on the bus to the plane, boom, in the Gulf. And then I'm like, surely they wouldn't send me back. You know? That's definitely worthy of a Soldier of Fortune uh, killer article. Uh, right. I, I to- what happened was I told my, my friends in the armory and uh, they thought it was cool too. Uh, but then they started pointing out all sorts of problems with it. You know, like, Drew, technically you're stealing your rifle if you take it with you. I was going to say, it seems like there's a lot of things. Oh, yeah, a lot of laws. a lot of trouble for Yes, so many laws would be broken. But then again, it was the 90s. Yeah, my, 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 just, my justification was, oh man, they're just going to think I'm so motivated <laughs> that they're going to be like, oh, you, you know. Like you crazy real, guy. Like a Bo Bergdahl situation. Yeah, almost. yeah, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So you were in Norway. You were in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. It was winter time. Oh yeah, it was dark. It was cold. Yeah, I had I caught pneumonia. Uh, the worst part was when they shipped us from one part of Norway to the northern part. Like the first few nights, our CO had tried to have us camp out in the snow in the in the winter without um turn it without putting like the fire in these stoves because he was like we can't have stoves with smoke coming out of them you know like that's not tactical we're supposed to be tactical here and so like for the first two nights there were we just froze like crazy in our even though we were in super heavy sleeping bags my unit went to war and all i got was this (laughs) stupid lung infection so uh i i caught pneumonia and then they shipped us on these boats and I had seasickness, an earache, and pneumonia all at once, and I was just uh, ready to die. So, and so nobody, you could look at some fjords, and that was about it. I mean, some people go their whole life, and yeah. they never get to see a fjord. Yeah, yeah, I got to. It was I got to see fjords. I got to see the Northern Lights. That was amazing. Um, I ate reindeer. 
And so I had reindeer milk too. Like, mm. yeah, I don't know why. That's what we said. I mean, a lot of times in the military, you you hear things and you're not really sure. Like, this milk they're giving us, it's reindeer milk? Yeah, yeah. And everybody swears it's true. And so you're like, maybe. <laughs> We're going to edit that part out. We're just going to keep, I drank okay. reindeer milk. Move right on. Right. I love that. And then, uh, so you wind up in Norway, you get sick, you come back to the States, you're in the reserves. I mean... Mm-hmm. You you go about your life from there, right? I mean, right, right, when, right. Once right. the war's over, yeah. you're well, not. It was it was a long it was a long war. Like the after the war ended, they sent us back to Camp Lejeune, and they just kept us there and kept us there. And we kind of sense like we're just we're just here to kind of keep the local economy of Jacksonville afloat. They're just like, well, we're not going to send these guys home because there's all these civilian jobs at stake. You know, um, all these topless dancers. You know, uh, crappy Shonies. tattoo artists. <laughs> tattoo artists. So yeah, I mean, I I I, I grew up military kid, and mm-hmm. yeah, there is there's a very distinct sort of culture, mm-hmm. uh, you know, outside of a military base. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we didn't talk about that a little bit. Oh, sure. Like, you could tell, like, the women our age did not want to talk to us, you know? Like, they just, they were just like, uh, Because they had seen, like, how just Marines would just come through there, there for a while. They're just looking to get laid. And then they're gone, you know? I was useless at this point, you know? with I was just, like, happy to chat with anybody at a bar. I was still drinking wine coolers, kind of. My my friends had to teach me to drink real drinks, like a Long Island iced tea. The real, the most manly drink there is, a yes. Long Island iced tea. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. And so uh, I was the guy that I would go into the club and they would stamp both of my hands and put a tab or those little wristband things on both of my wrists that all say not un- not over 21, do not serve this person, you know. And then you just just because you looked you looked like that guy. Yeah, I looked like that guy that's going to get the club in <laughs> you're, trouble. You're the one the yeah. cops come in. And, uh, yeah. What's that guy doing here? <laughs> what's this here? guy doing here? Yeah. <laughs> so I really loved the, the crew that I was with. Uh, uh, you know, like Kalinsky, Tuggle, Schaefer. Tuggle? Yeah, old Tugs. And I lost people that were on my side that were, I didn't have a team anymore. How uh, how did you like progress through the ranks? Was that an easy process for you or? It was, was for, it I, for me, I'm a, my Hulk military career was a living example of the Peter principle. If you've ever heard of this, I think Jake and I have mention this right it's like when you if you just kind of keep doing your job right Right. if you do your job the idea is if a person does their job successfully then they're going to be promoted and they keep getting promoted not so much based on whether they're going to do a good job in the promotion but just okay you did your current job well okay good you're promoted to the next thing and the marine corps puts an extra pressure on that they call it up or out which is you either keep making promotions or you aren't offered a new contract and essentially you're fired, but in slow motion, you know, just your contract runs out and you don't get a new one and then you're done. So they, I just kept getting promoted because I was an outstanding, I was, I won most motivated PFC my first year, like voted by that. Uh, by by my unit and are there, I, are there are there other superlatives like best smile yeah, no. best dancer no most motivated yeah we were, I was most uh, I was a great corporal I was a I was a really good sergeant and then as staff sergeant that's where 
things started to go a bit awry. Yeah. Like I had to work more and more. I had to, I did do jobs where I needed the active duty NCOs to work with me and help me. And they just didn't give a shit. They thought I was a, like some fucking loser. Like I didn't get on with them at all. And was that, so you, I mean, you, you came back from the war or from Norway, went to mm-hmm. Camp Lejeune. And then I assume was the rest of your time in San Francisco yeah, the whole time. San, the or that and Oakland, they shut down they Treasure sh- Island sh- and they moved us to, to Oakland, but always around there. So you, you, you did the rest of your time in the reserves. You mm-hmm. went made it to staff sergeant, you said. Yep. And then that was kind of the end of your time? Or? Yeah, I made it to staff sergeant, and they tried me out as platoon sergeant. And that one I did, all right, not bad at. And so it was just a few, like a year or two after that that you finally got out? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was, I was in during, I stayed in during the start of the Iraq War. 2003. So, yeah, 2003. Um, uh, I left the unit in 2004 that I got a call from the active duty guys and they were just calling everybody in the unit and they were saying, yes, uh, Wesley. Okay. We're just calling everyone and we're seeing, uh, are you willing to put your name in, uh, to do a tour in Iraq, uh, if they want you like they'll, they'll look at your MOS and whether or not it's useful. Uh, and this is in 2004 and they said, uh, they're just seeing how many people that they have that are still under contract. And they're like, do you want you to basically, do you want to volunteer for Iraq if they need you? And were there a lot of other people doing that at this point? I mean, no, because it was like unit? in 04, things hadn't really gone too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the invasion had happened and it had been done, and all those guys had mostly come back. But it was starting to get like there was violence starting to happen. And it was looking like, okay, something long-term could be beginning here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, oh, if I say yes to this, like, I'm not sure what I could be saying yes to. And like the idea of saying like, no, sorry, just seemed to, <laughs> it would have seemed like so shitty. Especially in that climate at yeah. that time. Yeah. Uh, and I never got called up because for the same reason that I was in the process of getting, you know, uh, sort of like uh, the boot was because I was a staff sergeant whose only like training was to do a job that a PF, uh, an E1 right. or an E2 was supposed to do. And I was an E6 right. pay grade. Right, right. So so then you, you got out in 2004. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later, you end up back here in Austin. I mean, mm-hmm. that's it's, it seems like you uh, yeah. pretty much like that's like the next stage, right? Like right. what brings us to today. Yep. So you pretty much were still... Uh, when you moved here, it's sort of in the afterglow of that period yeah. of your life. Yeah. I have to add, I mean, this may sound like kind of a heavy question, but what's like a message you can get out there from your experience? And it sounds like a, a tough question to kind of wrap it all up. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I, just don't, like, I don't have anything How do you summarize your experience? So many veterans, they're dealing with, with being in a war. Um, I, I, I've, I learned a lot about how to work with people like at a company i think that that is an excellent segue Mm -hmm. transition into sort of today you do improv yeah one of the most supportive players yeah you you like being on a team with people and yeah yeah it makes a lot more sense yep i think the trend in my life is wanting to find places to belong people to connect with and so uh the military was perfect for me improv was perfect for me in those regards This 
This has been a Neighbor Inc. podcast. Go to neighborinc.com for more details. Follow us on social media at DisarmPod. This episode was produced and edited by Jake Millward and me, Nick DeMortier. Tune in next week for an interview with Avery Ragnarok.